people have opinions without being fully informed. Trust me, I'm a Canadian here. I don't care if you're a Christian, Messianic, or Hebrew roots. I want to know if your theology is biblical. Maybe I'm right. Of course I'm right. If you're going to cite a source, be responsible. You know, cite your source. You're welcome to college. Hey, we're just having a conversation. There's only 36 people listening anyway, right? You can Google it. Wow, at what point does history matter? At what point does truth matter? An alien invasion. Is it biblical? Of course it is. Look, there's a way to do scholarship and a way not to do scholarship. you got to cite your source. Who's your source? My best friend, sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows his kid is going with the girl. And that about sums it up. What up? And shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. Show where theology matters, scholarship counts, and theology matters. On this secretly broadcast Monday, my name is Caleb Hague. Of course, with me, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, brother? It is going well. You know, we... Here we, we are in, in the middle of Sukkot. Yes. Wearing the same shirt, nonetheless. YeshuaShirts.com. What? We, uh, you know, we... we I sent out an email an hour ago saying, we're not doing the show on Wednesday. We're doing it on Monday this week because it's Sukkot. Uh, and so on and so forth. We still have six people in the chat room instantly. Love it. Love it. Oh, man, how's your Sukkot going? Going well. I've had some nice midnight uh, times out in the Sukkah. And the weather's been beautiful here. So stars, moonlight. The chat room says twinsies. Because <laughs> we got the same shirt. Yep. That's what uh, I'm about. Yeah, I'm, I'm not wearing my normal uh, suit, you know, button-up shirt tie because it's the middle of uh, it's the middle of Sukkot. So why would I? You know, I I will be honest with you. I have not uh, I have not celebrated like I normally do. Uh, however, we've been having a good Sukkot. The family's been kind of all over the place. Actually, one of the reasons that we're uh, going to be uh, broadcasting today instead of on Monday is because oh, I forgot to start our uh, is because um, my family actually is taking an impromptu trip. It's my son's birthday, and it is also my father-in-law's birthday, and uh, so they are. We're all going over to uh, to Rob's neck of the woods, uh, and uh, Lord willing, we'll see. Lord willing, we're going to be able to see you uh, the last night of Sukkot. Well, I told people so, but I also said. It's not for sure. We would love to. Uh, it's my father-in-law's birthday dinner sometime while we're gone, and we're only going to be gone for two two days. So we're kind of at the whim of uh, of people of of the of the in-laws, but we'll see. I, I would love to make it out. It's been a way too long since I've been too hard to miss. Actually, the last time I was out at your congregation, you guys were in a different building. Wow, maybe is that right? Yep, that's yeah. right. It's two years ago. Two thousand. Right? I, I think it was two thousand fourteen. Actually, was it two thousand fourteen? Yeah, it was. It was spring or spring of two thousand fourteen. Yeah, we moved there August of two thousand fourteen. Let me see, fourteen, fifteen. Yeah, I yeah. was. There, I was there I July, right. July of two thousand. Because yeah, that's when we bought our house. We bought. We signed papers. Is that when, is that when, is that when uh, Ariel Berkowitz was over here? No, that was the year before. That was 2013. Oh, okay. Anyway, um, okay. Well, 
What up in Shalom to the, wow, we got, we actually got a crowd in the chat room right now. What up in Shalom to everybody in there. What up in Shalom to everybody out in Radio Land as well. I don't know, you know, to be honest with you, this is how bad my bookkeeping is. Um, I know that, uh, uh, that uh, Chava Messianic Radio was um, slotted to, to sponsor four specific shows. Now, I'm pretty sure that the fourth one ended on show 190. But just in good faith, just in case my bookkeeping got screwed up and it's actually 191, we'll let them uh, we'll let them produce this show as well. So, uh, because of that, uh, the Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by Chava Messianic Radio. Go to Chava Messianic Radio, listen to all sorts of great Messianic music. You can listen to it on demand. You can choose playlists, thumbs up the people you like, thumbs down the people you don't. See what other uh, artists are popular amongst believers on the station. It's really a, a great station. So uh, thank you very much. Chava Messianic Radio, messianicradio.com. Um, and yeah, thank you very much to those guys for producing show 191. Also, as you can see by uh, the twinsies that Rob and I are today, uh, show 191 is also brought to you by YeshuaShirts.com. Start a conversation today. And I don't know if we've said this in, uh, recently, but we should say it now. If you go to uh, uh, YeshuaShirts.com and you shop, at the ch at checkout, you can put in the coupon code TRRADIO. I believe it still works. 10% off your order just for listening to this show. Okay, now that that's over. Um, let's see here. Actually, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to undo that. Okay. Um, so we have a couple of uh, a couple of things that we can talk about today, and this is all due to uh, our wonderful listeners that send us emails and also uh, call our comment line. Oh, and I suppose I should do that too as well, right? You can call our comment line at two five three four six five thirty two zero five. It's two five three four six five thirty two zero five. Um, you can also send us emails, chag at torahresource.com. That's chag at torahresource.com. Okay, now that that's all over, let's go to, uh, well, should we open up the uh, the mailbag? It's been a really sure. long time since we've actually opened up the mailbag. Give me just a second because, ah, uh, I got to find it. Here it is. Let's open up the mailbag. Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. here. Okay. Uh, the first one, now this is in regards to our last show, our last show, show 190. We talked about um, a article that came out in Patatikva. Um, and it was, I, I sent a link, by the way, to uh, Mr. Chamberlain, uh, the gentleman who wrote the article. Um, and I asked him, I now he said, he, he responded to, he said, uh, that he was been very busy. He hadn't had a chance to look at it, but he hoped to at some time soon. So, um, I, but I encouraged him if he had any response to any of the objections that we raised to please let us know. And we would, uh, we'd love to hear any, uh, you know, any response that he might have in that conversation about Aramaic primacy, we got to the genealogy in Matthew chapter one. Okay. Now for oh, those, right. for those who were not uh, part of this conversation, didn't hear this conversation, uh, Rob, and I think he's right. Actually. I think that uh, the way that the text reads 
It sounds like, so first, the objection is, is that Matthew says that there are 14 generations. There's three blocks of 14 generations, he says. There's 14 generations from this person to this person, 14 from this person to this person, 14 from this person to this person. But there's not enough names. That's the objection. Enough, right. Yeah, the objection yeah. is that there's not enough name. There's there's 14 in the first, 14 in the second block, and there's only 13 in the third block. And so uh, a lot of people have, have uh, discussed uh, how this could be and why did Matthew screw up? Wasn't he counting correctly? You know, yeah, can't think. He took all that time to write twenty-eight chapters. Of course, yeah. there were no chapters in his. Uh, but. but he can't. He can't even figure. You know, he can't even count the names that he lists there. Yeah, come on, and so uh, obviously, uh, one of the, the response. I shouldn't say obviously. The response that was given in this article was that, well, um, it's the Greek Ara- text is not original. The yeah. Greek text text is not original. The Aramaic text text is original. The Aramaic texts. Adds a, or, a, yeah, another know. name, and uh, and it does. It, the later text found in much later, much much later, uh, add an extra name. Now, just in basic biblical hermeneutics, the shorter reading is usually original, and the harder reading is usually original. And the reason why is because scribes tend to try to make things make sense to people, right? This doesn't make sense at all. Let me smooth it out for you. Or something like, hey, Matthew missed a name. Let's put one in to make his, you know, to make it not sound like he's lying. Okay. So uh, that's, I mean, that would be the rules of, of hermeneutics. However, sometimes those rules need to be bent a little, right? Sometimes that's not always the case, but most of the time it is. Uh, this person, Shane, writes in and he says, Matthew genealogy is easily explained from Lightfoot, 14 generations. So Lightfoot is now, he's quoting Lightfoot now. Although all things do not square exactly in this threefold number of 14 generations, yet there is no reason why this should be charged as a fault upon Matthew. When in the Jewish schools themselves, it obtained for a custom, yea, almost for an axiom to reduce things and numbers to the very same when they were near alike. The thing will be uh, plain by an example or two when a hundred almost might be produced. And he gave some examples from the Talmud and other rabbinic writings like the Amidah. Okay. Several comments on this to Shane. Thank you for writing in. Oh, oh, I mean like, because they call it the Shimona Esrei. They call it the 18 when they're Even though it's 19. 19. Yeah. So okay. well. here's, here's the, here's the problem though. Uh, and uh, I mean, I've, I've read Lightfoot before, and, but, um, there's several things going on. First of all, the Jewish writings are much later. You can't take things from the Talmud and from the Amidah, which is much later and say, oh, this reflects back onto the first century. This is a misstep by Lightfoot. That's, that's first. Second, um, I mean, we just, there's an easy way to explain this. Well, that's the thing. So you have internal te- text internal. So yeah. is there coherence within Matthew 1 itself without looking at any outside sources? Right? That's so we look and at the answer is yes. Coherence. And if we have a yes, then we don't need to go <laughs> to try to explain it when we're, right? Yeah, that's what you're getting at. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Um, so, so the claim, so that claim though, and I think your father in the, in the uh, commentary on Matthew, he he 
goes over several different approaches that people have taken to try to explain. And one of them is, oh, it's, it's uh, an idealized number. Um, that he's, a, a, in other words, it's a, it's a pattern that doesn't, that we don't have to push it to make it fit because he's talking in general approximations. You know, there's a suggestion you know, that might, someone could, someone could, if that's the way you want to take it, you know, that's fine. There's a suggestion my father, uh, made and he said, I haven't done any work on this. You know, it just came to my head. So he's not going to, you know, put this, he's not going to write this up anytime soon until he really looks into it and thinks through it. But his thought was maybe the thirteenth name or the fourteenth name is left out because it's supposed to be the Holy Spirit, which is the father, the the real father of y Yeshua. I have problems with that simply because it names Joseph. Well, it's, not, it's not the Ruach Hakodesh; it's the father. The father's the father. The father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, thank yeah. you. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I hear what you're saying. Um, but yeah, that, I, yeah, that's. I I think that the explanation is is seen within the text because he says from Abraham to. Uh, from Abraham to David, yeah. and then he, he counts he David again. Leaves, he, he he says from Abraham, then from David, then from Babylon. Yeah, he, he the third person isn't a person. It's it's a crisis. It's a it's an event of God's judgment. Right. The the Babylonian diaspora is there because it's a it's a critical historical event since the giving of the Torah at Sinai, since the solemn, uh, the reign of, of David and Solomon, that it means that Israel sinned, right? When you have from Abraham to David and then you have David to exile, that means from David to exile was a time of, of Israel and sin and the exile is, a, is God's judgment. But that doesn't even, to me, that's not even the point. The, the the point comes before that. He he mentions David twice, which means it should be counted twice. From Abraham to David. So where mm -hmm. do you stop counting? You don't start stop counting the one before David. You stop counting on David. Then he says, right. from David to the Babylonian exile. Okay. Right, right, exactly. Well, so if he starts with David again, where do you start counting? You don't start counting after David. He said, from David. So you count David again. Just That's like one. you did from Abraham. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the chat room asks this. Sean King says, what do you mean by theology matters? Good question. What do we mean by theology matters? It means that... Okay, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm thinking of a good example here. Great question. It's a great question. I, I, let, 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 me, let me tell you exactly what I, what I think of when I think of this. I'm going to try to take people's names and, and what there's, there's, uh, you know, our, our congregation here in, in Tacoma, Washington, maybe there's several other congregations in Tacoma, Washington, and let's pretend for a second that we're going to get together for Sukkot. Okay. And, uh, the leadership says, okay, well, we're going to invite uh, group a, and we're going to invite group B. And then somebody from the congregation says, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. What about group C? And the leadership says, well, group C doesn't believe this point, this point, this point. And the person says, you're just getting hung up on theology. Those are just theological points. Well, the theology is what the, the Bible is what puts forth theology. I apologize. 
It's a caller. It's a live caller. It's a live caller. Um, the Bible puts forth theology. We don't. We don't put forth theology. The Bible puts forth theology. There's true theology, which the Bible puts forward, and then there's false theology. But the fact of the matter is, is that the theology that the Bible puts forward is vitally important to our faith because it's what we rest our faith on. And so theology does matter. If somebody else says that the deity of the Messiah doesn't matter and I say that, that the deity of the Messiah is vital, I'm not going to be able to be in true fellowship with somebody who disagrees with that part of my theology. And Sean says, theology should be the Bible. That's it. I agree. Our theology... Wait, let's, can... pause, let's pause there. Okay. Yes. It should be the Bible. And what's packed into that? What's packed into the Bible, when I say the Bible, is language, history, translation, and all the hermeneutical... Um, methods behind how to interpret and explain to someone who doesn't read the language, who's not immersed in those texts, explain the meaning and the application. And, and that is, that's where the, the, there's a serious battle on that front. So just saying the Bible is generally true but there's a lot of people that share the same Bible and have very different theologies. And so we have to account for that. Why is that? How, if, if it's just the Bible, how come since the Reformation we don't have a full coherence of perspective across all the people who claim to believe that book? Um, well, Gary, our faithful... Uh, I don't know. But it's a good question because what Sean's pointing out is that just like Yeshua said to the Pharisees, they were letting uh, the the motor or the, the machine of social convention override the word of God. Let's go to let's right? go let's so go to the word of God. Peop, judging people for, oh, you didn't you're they're not washing their hands before they eat. Yeah. Or you're not keeping the Shabbat correct. Yeah. Or you don't belong because you're not Jewish, and therefore you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. Okay, these are very powerful social conventions that were in play in the in the Second Temple period. And Yeshua said, "Look, you guys are hypocrites. You're you're letting these social these powerful social um, uh, institutions override the very word of God." And so it's it's such an important point. This is a major theme of the Reformation was the recognition of that truth, but now in, in the, you know, where the Roman church was like, had adopted a whole new set of, of contrary to the word of God institutions, and you had people like Luther and those who were already burned at the stake in, in just the years before him, first daring to stand up on the word of God against the institutions. And so, uh, but that language, we know from the reformers, they were real big in their stance against those institutions on the original languages. Yeah. And they were saying teachers in the body of Messiah need to be oriented, uh, they need to be uh, competent and working with the Bible in the original languages so that they can hear it clearly, they can think clearly about God's word, and then they can teach it and articulate it clearly 
in whatever the target language is. So uh, hang on just a sec. So what we are now is lazy. Now we have Bibles in English everywhere. Hang, 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 hang. You're getting, you're, wait, you're getting ahead. You're getting ahead. Stop. Hang on. So uh, Sean says, uh, tradition of men ruined it. Traditions of men nullify the word of God. And Gary says, all? And yeah, Sean says, tradi- right, yeah, and, and Sean says, Yeshua is the word of God, John 1, 14, Revelation 19, th- 13. Tradition of men nullify Messiah. But that's not, <laughs> so you're saying that all theology is traditions of men? Okay, that's that can't be true. That not only can that not be true, but it's simply wrong. Yeah, that we 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 you're, have to you're have con- tradition. You're conflating. We have to have. We, we, we here's the thing for Sean's point is Sean. We have to have transmission of doctrine from one generation to another, and that has to do with the on the very very minimalist view. You have to have the transmission of the scriptures themselves. You have to have the transmission of the Bible from in, in its Hebrew language or in the Greek language. And until the printing press, the printing press didn't come along until the 15th century. We have, uh, most, he, most of history since Yeshua has been scriptures transmitted by copyists, right? By scribes and by people teaching it. Oh. And that, there's, you can't not have tradition. There's no way to transmit. Well, well hang on just a sec. But, but hang on just a sec. The idea that tradition and theology are one and the same is simply not true. So you're, oh, that's, you're, that's you're, confl- you are mixing up tradition and, and, uh, theology. But Gary, of course, uh, goes straight to scripture, which is uh, brilliant. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in, at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the str- the stewardship of God, that is, by faith. And then Gary also cites, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So the point is, is that yes, tradition yeah, doc- is doctrine matters. Yeah, certain tra- certain traditions are important, and that's true. Certain traditions have certainly muddied the waters. This is the ex- and here's a way. This, way wait, hang on, hang on, just a sec. This okay. is the whole point of the Reformation, right? Is that is that Luther and Calvin and these guys were fighting against the idea of tradition by the Catholic Church to strong-arm believers into doing what they wanted. And, and they did at their own peril to, like, they risked their lives. That's the thing. People had been burned at, at the stake, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, so it's not like in America where I can, you know, I, I'm thankful that we live in a place where we have free speech as, a, as at least a, an ideal, a public ideal. Um, but the, if we look at the word theology, it means talking about God, thinking about God. There's accurate theology. There's accurate ways to think about God. Biblical theology. Bib, right. Biblical. There's biblically accurate ways to think about God, and then there's ways of thinking and talking about God that are absolutely non-biblical. And it's on us to to sharpen that edge. We need to know the difference. We need to have a discernment or to be able to differentiate between thoughts about God and statements about God that are true versus ways of thinking and speculating that are not true. And this is a, and I, uh, and I would give an example. An yeah, example please. would be the recent this summer where people were talking about, you know, 
what is it, Luke 21, 25 or 21, 24, because those numbers pointed to August 21st and not because of the storms or that the, the Hebrew letter Tav is 400 and it's approximately 400 uh, times difference in size between the sun and the moon. I mean, this is bad theology. You're teaching people the wrong way to think. Okay, so they're, they're promoting the Bible, but th- they're teaching people the wrong thing. I think an even better example is this. You have reading the Word of God and understanding what it says. And then you have people who say, no, let's look at it through the Zohar, the lens of the Zohar. And now you have these 13 emanations of God. You have the expansion, the retraction. You have the, I mean, all sorts of nonsense. This is horrible theology. It's bad theology. And this proves the point. Biblical theology is what we need to learn and understand. And we learn that from the Bible. When, when man starts to learn their own theology or make up their own theology, it's really bad. And you get things like Jewish mysticism, Christian mysticism, things that are, are horribly out to lunch and misinterpret God and lead people down a, a horrible path, a wrong path, a path to destruction. And that's blood, blood moons. Yeah. That's, that's why theology October, matters. Or what was it? What was the day that it was, the world was supposed to end a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. Theology matters. There's so another way to think about it, Caleb, back to your point. Theology has social consequences. Oh, yeah. There, we had a guy visit one year. Or, or, yeah, he came on, on a Shabbat and we we're having, during Oneg and I never met him. He sat down. He's just like, oh, yeah. He was just talking, going on and on and on with a loud voice about how Yeshua is was a created being. Yeshua was just a man. <laughs> and I'm just like, Bam. No, you will not. And, and it's like, you know, I'm a generally a non-confrontational kind of person. But, but I've seen, I, but I've seen, I've seen that that vein in your neck <laughs> pop out before, dude. When that happens, everybody ru- get under the table. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so the point is that there's is like, look, and the guy he was never told you can't come back, but he didn't come back. Okay, so there were social consequences. There were social consequences to, to that, um, and we have to know where the edges are. We have to take ownership, and this so the bar is high. Yeshua sets a high bar for it. There's no higher bar set than the bar that Yeshua sets. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? What does that mean? That's like easy to remember. It's. We, we are on a narrow path, and that narrow path, if we say we believe what we believe, then our actions necessarily must, there, must correspond. And we can't, we, we are confronted with the truth of history. We are confronted with the truth of the way God has, has brought history about. That means... I know I, I don't. I hit the language uh, cowbell maybe a lot. <laughs> Need more cowbell, but it's like, you know, I'm not. I didn't choose that Hebrew was going to be the language for the Tanakh or that the Greek. Right? This is real historical stuff, and it means hard work. 
if you if if you want to get involved in the minutia of theological discussions, then you there's hard work that's expected of you, right? To be to be in there and to be taken seriously. Because otherwise you have the the what we call the Facebook kind of flash kind of arguments. Or you have teachers out there that teach all these these crazy things and they're not anchored in the in the word of God, but yet they're they're uh advertising as if the Bible is their source. So the 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 last thing that I would say on this is uh is and Perhaps one of the main reasons that we adopted uh, the, the double sandwich slogan of Theology Matters, Scholarship Counts, and Theology Matters is because if you look at the two groups that we uh, are predominantly identified with and might even identify with sometimes, Messianic and Hebrew Roots, one of the biggest problems that we have is that theology has not been a huge issue in these groups. And because of that, you have a giving up of sola scriptura, you have which is a vital doctrine. You have a turning against the uh, the truth of the deity of the Messiah. These are central theological doctrines, not just to the Bible itself, but to our faith. Without them, our faith is completely null and void. Right. And so uh, because of a uh, de-emphasis of theology within the Messianic and the Hebrew Roots movements, you have heretical doctrine that has permeated the theological stance of these groups, making them essentially void from the outset. When the Christians look at, this is one reason that I think that, this is one way that I think that the Christians have uh, used to reject what uh, the Hebrew roots and the what is right about the Hebrew roots and Messianic movement, that is that the Torah is the way of God's sanctification, Christians look at, at that and say, look at their theology. They're all over the place. They don't have, you know, a predominant amount of them are, what, giving up on the Messiah or, you know, the deity of the Messiah, or they're bringing in rabbinic... Kabbalah. Kabbalah and rabbinic... Hebrew word pictures. Yeah, exactly. Their, their uh, theology's all over the place. And they're right. Theology matters, and when you think that theology doesn't matter, that's when you start to get into huge trouble. Okay. Good question. That was, great that's question. a great question. It's a challenging because I, I think, I know from my perspective, we've taken that for granted, and it's sure. and it's helpful to have someone say, hey, what do you mean by that? Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's, that's really good. Okay. Let's move on. Andrew writes in, he says, uh, would putting up a tent even count as a sukkah? I uh, think this comes off of my comments last week that I was just going to put up a tent for my sukkah, which by the way I did. Um, and, uh, the reason I did that was because before I, I'll give you a little personal note on myself before my father was, uh, was gracious enough to come in our old house, he came to our house and he brought two by fours and some siding and all this and, and built us a nice three, uh, three walled sukkah and we could put the, the top on it. And, and, uh, it was great. And, uh, when we moved to our new house, we took that with us. It was actually one of the things that got put in the U-Haul was our sukkah. And, uh, it still rests behind my garage today. Um, and last year, I 
by myself, took out these walls, which was quite a, a challenge, especially for someone who's extremely out of shape like myself. And I put them all together and the weather was so horrific last year. We spent all of eight minutes total in eight days in our suka. That's, mm -hmm. I mean, eight minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, and while we were out there, we were huddled around because it was storming. It, I mean, it was miserable. It was just a miserable time here in, uh, Western Washington. So this year, I didn't know what the weather was going to be like. And I thought, you know what? We're going to be at other people's houses almost the whole time anyway. They're going to have sukas and whatnot. Now, one of the things that I've never done, uh, we spend a lot of the time in the suka usually, but we don't actually sleep in it. And so this year, I wanted to sleep outside a couple of nights. And now I know that there are people who think that, uh, you know, you, you need to sleep in it every night. There's a mixture of ideas on this. Um, but anyway, Andrew writes, uh, would, uh, putting up a tent even count as a suka. As far as I can fathom, they need to be made of the rustic products of nature, planks, bamboo, poles, hemp, ties, big leaves, etc. And we should aim for them to be as comfortable to dwell in as possible, though they are temporary. Well, this is a great question. Let's go to Leviticus 23, because this is where we get the uh, the command to celebrate, uh, celebrate the festival of booths or Sukkot, uh, 23 Leviticus 23 verses, uh, 34 and following speak to the people of Israel. I'm reading out of the ESV, by the way, speak to the people of Israel saying on the 15th day of this seventh month. And for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. This brings up another question that I'll ask you in a few minutes here, Rob. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drinks, uh, drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day, this is interesting in and of itself, all of a sudden it goes from seven days we shall, we shall celebrate, and all of a sudden in verse 39, lo and behold, uh, eighth day is added, right? On the first day you shall, I thought it was seven days long, but then on the eighth day, right? right. Uh, so this is interesting. So, uh, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. So now we have a Sabbath on the eighth day, even though the festival is only seven days long. We'll get to this in a second. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Now we're back to seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in, dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast of the Lord. So what do we learn from this? First of all, we learn that A, there's the festival for seven days. In verse 39, we're told that there's an eighth day, which is a Sabbath. So we're, we have two Sabbaths. And then we're also told that we're supposed to dwell in booths. 
This could mean sit, dwell. Yeshvu, yeah. So from from Yeshav. To now, sit. just quickly, I'll give you my opinion on on Andrew's question quickly, and then I want to address something else. But I'll get your opinion too. Andrew says that uh, these booths, as far as I can fathom, they should be made of rustic products of nature, planks, bamboo poles, hemp ties, big leaves, etc. Um, while I understand that we're supposed to take in things to the booth, I think that that is certainly reading into the text. First of all, when, when the Israelites uh, camped uh, at Sukkot and they, uh, they camped there, it doesn't tell us what they were camping in. It doesn't say that they made it out of this, that, or the other. And for all we know, you know, they had just pillaged uh, Egypt. Maybe they actually got some uh, some of the army's tents, right? Maybe they were made out of porpoise skin. Who knows? I mean, the point is, is that it doesn't tell us what the booths are supposed to be made out of. It doesn't tell us what they're supposed to look like. It doesn't tell us how they're supposed to function. It just says that they're supposed to be booths. It does seem to uh, allude to it be being temporary. Now, later rabbinics have all sorts of, you know, you, it can be like this. It can't be like this. You have to do this. This roof has to be like this, right? But the text itself just simply says you're supposed to dwell in booths. I think that a tent is certainly uh, can certainly be a temporary dwelling, and I think that's what the booth is supposed to be, is a temporary dwelling. What do you think, Rob? No, it sounds good to me. <laughs> Thank you for your in-depth uh, commentary on this passage. Okay, so let's get back to... I, this is a concept that I just had uh, several days ago. Uh, a lot of people know that I've, I've been deeply immersed in, uh, the Passover and the last supper, the Passover studies. Somebody said to me, um, when was it during camp? Somebody said to me that they thought that, uh, there was that the day of first fruits, that is the 16th of Nisan. So you have the 14th of Nisan, this is the, and we're talking about Passover now. The 14th of Nisan is the first, you know, it was where you kill the, the animal, the 15th, the lamb, the 15th is the Sabbath, and then the 16th is when you count the first Omer. Right. So this person was saying they thought that the, that this day of first fruits of counting the, the first Omer was a separate festival, which I said, no, I don't, I don't believe that. However... And they and they said, well, I thought this it's because not called well, it's not called a hog, exactly. Okay, here's the thing: we have to. What words are we using just to talk about things versus what is it called in scripture? There's only three hogs, right? Passover, and those are the pilgrimage festivals, properly called hog, and that is there's two in the beginning of the year and one in the end of the year, right? There's Passover. Which is which means the slaughter participation in the Passover meal. That's a chag in Jerusalem, where the males are to be. The other is Shavuot, and or the second, and then the third, of course, is uh, Sukkot. So obviously, if we're going to be use the Bible's language for a chag, we would not say that the uh, the the reshit, the Omer. Is is a hog? Certainly, it's a it's a commanded 
I mean, it's a mitzvah. I mean, it's a commandment. And it's time. It's it's a time bound. I mean, it's there's a certain time that it needs to be done, etc. But it's not a festival. Okay, it's not so, called a. It's not a moed. Okay, so here's my thought. Because this person said, I thought that they that it added up to seven. The, the high holy days added up to seven. And this got me thinking a little bit. The high Be- holy days added up to seven. Hmm. Tell me so more. there were seven, seven of them, right? Okay, so I, I have taught my son that we have five high holy days or five hogs, right? Which is, and really there's six if you count the Sabbath. No, they're not called hogs, though. That's the thing. The Bible only has three things that are called hogs. Hogs, okay, but they're Passo- called... That's the, the three regalim, okay. right? The You're three... right. I apologize. No. So, but, but we use feasts more generally. Hang on. So... 23. I'm pulling up... I'm sorry, folks. I'm pulling up a Hebrew text here. Give me just a second. The El B'nai Yisrael Arta Elohim... Moedai Adonai. So the the Moedim is what I'm thinking of. Okay. How many Moedim do we have? Or how's about this? How many Mikra Kodishes do we have? That's a, there you go. That, that now what you're doing is you're using the Torah's language to describe the category. And that'll be helpful. That'll get you, you'll be able to quantify that and say, no, this is, this is accurate. Accurate. The Moedim mentioned in, well, we have them in two places you can go, really. You go to Viticus 23, or you go to Numbers 28 and 29, where it unpacks it with obligatory uh, additional, the Musaf offering, the additional offerings for each of the feast days, for each of the Moedim. So a Mikra Kodesh, for those who don't know, I'm sorry for not explaining the language here. Moedim would be appointed time. Mikra Kodesh would be holy assembly or holy gathering. Um, and so, for instance, the, the Shabbat is actually called a Mikra Kodesh, right? Right, right. In, in Leviticus 23. But if we take the weekly Mikra Kodesh out and... Uh, and, then, na- and then the new moon, the Rosh Kodesh. So, yeah, okay. So what about the Moedim? How many Moedim do we have? Because here's my thought. If you if you take the okay, you have Passover, you have Shavuot, you have uh, Yom Teruah, you have Yom Kippur, and you have Sukkot, right? So most people are going to think of five uh, uh, Moedim, right? Five Moedim. But if you consider the eighth day separate or its own festival of Sukkot, now all of a sudden you have six. But what I was thinking is, is that Passover, the uh, Heartes, which is the Greek word for festival, is only ever used for the 15th of Nisan, never for the 14th. However, the 14th is referred to as the Passover and then seven days of unleavened bread. Now, I know that we mash all these together, just like we mash all of Sukkot together, right? But my question is, is were they originally separate? It seems like the Passover on the 14th was separate from the seven days of unleavened bread, which starts on the 15th, the Heortes, in the Apostolic Scriptures. So to me, it's, it seems as though we have seven Moedim. If you separate the first, and interestingly, the, 
Passover, the first day would be the one that is separated from the other seven. And Sukkot is reversed, right? So it bookends. What do you think? Am I out to lunch? Am I making up facts here? No, well, I don't know. I don't know. I guess it it depends on where you want to start slicing the the differentiations. Well, okay. Here's the other differentiation. The Mikra Kodesh on the Moedim, there's seven of them. Because there's the first mode, there's the first Mikra Kodesh on Passover, and then there's one on the last day of Passover. Okay, that's two. Shavuot is one. Yom Teruah is one. Yom Kippur is one. There's one at the beginning of Sukkot and one at the end of Sukkot. Seven. Well, you'd say the eighth. The eighth day is not really part of Sukkot. Right? I agree. That's what you're saying. Yeah. That, so, so but but those are the those are the it's micro- attached and that it's called the eighth. The fact that it's called the eighth means it's somehow connected to the counting of the seven. But, but my but my point is is that there's Sukkot is over because for example one way to think of that is the numbers twenty nine. You have the additional burnt offerings, right? You have the first day of Sukkot. You have thirteen bulls, right? Then twelve, ten, you know. 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7. So the seventh day of Sukkot, you have seven bulls in addition to the rams and the, the 14 lambs, which are consistent each day. But then you get to the eighth day, boom, only one bull. So you jump from the seventh day of Sukkot having seven bulls, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, to the eighth day, you're down to one bull. So in terms of Marking by adi- the Musaf offerings, by the additional uh, festival work that the that the Kohanim do, it it's back that the eighth day is no different than a Rosh Chodesh or, or uh, a Yom Teruah. It's no different than uh, a Yom Teruah or the additional Yom Kippur offerings, which is just a bull. It has just a single bull as a burnt offering. Um, so. So yeah, I mean that there's different ways you can. Peter makes a great point in the in the well, he makes a great point that essentially shatters my my uh, theory here, which is that the the lamb is sacrificed on the 14th, but it's not a mikra kodesh. The mikra kodesh is on the 15th, which would be part of unleavened bread. The festival of if we if we separate if we separate like I was trying to do Passover on the 14th from the festival of unleavened bread. You have the two Mikra Kodesh in the Festival of Unleavened Bread, not on the 14th. And it's true. He's right. He's, he's yeah, he pegged it. All right, let's move on. Let's move on to something that we're actually prepared to talk about. Uh, Andrew brings up another uh, point. I'm sorry. My aller- allergies are bugging me today. For those who can see me. I too. I was just sneezing oh. crazy this morning. Okay. Um, Andrew brings up another good point, uh, and he writes in and says this. He says, oh, by the way, before we get into this, because this is really our last topic, we should say that uh, The Robin Caleb Show is brought to you predominantly from the generous support of our listeners. And if you'd like to help support and continue this show, uh, you can do so by going to torresource.com, click on the donate button, and then actually on the donate, like when you get to the checkout page, there is a place on there to uh, put order notes. We would encourage you if you're going to make a donation uh, to the Robin Caleb Show, please put in there that uh, you know you're you're uh, that basically you're giving to the Robin Caleb Show because it helps us know uh, kind of where you you know where people have have uh, come to that page from, and so it's uh, and it's always nice to uh, you know hear people giving support 
um, we really like the little messages that people write. So what, uh, one clarification, well, just the hog is in Exodus. If you look in Exodus, the seven days of Matzot is called the hog, and but the Passover is also called a hog. So I, I would just encourage anybody who wants to dive into that more, just to make sure, look at those categories provided by the Torah text itself, such as Chag or Moed or Mikre Kodesh, and you could chart these out. I've never done that. I think if, if you want to do this counting, that's the method I would recommend starting with is, is um, chart it out according to the terminology, the labels that Moshe gives them in the Torah, and let that be your, your guide for categorization. Interesting. Yes, yeah. very interesting. Okay, um, let's go to our last question. This is also from Andrew. He says, does publicly delivering the priestly blessing, that is the Aaronic benediction, to a congregation require the efficient, the officiant to be a physical Cohen? That means a uh, descendant of Aaron or a priest, mm. a blood descendant of Aaron. Many Messianics seem enthralled with it so much that they forget the plain commandment requires physical Kohanim on behalf of the people. If there is... The idea of being a spiritual priesthood, to me, that sounds like a slippery slope. It's kind of like how gift stores sell the holy ketoret incense according to the uh, recipe in Exodus, ignoring that the same portion of Exodus forbids making a knockoff incense for use outside the tabernacle. Now, this last part that he brings up about the incense, I've actually never seen that mixture put together. The ones that I've seen, they have each one of the ingredients for it, but it's all separated into uh, single ingredients. They do that specifically because you're not supposed to mix them together except for the temple incense, right? And so the idea is you can run your nose kind of over the tops of the, you know, of the, of the incense things, and then you can kind of get an idea of what it might have smelled like if they were all together. But I've never seen them mixed together. Maybe he has, and that's totally fine. Um, well, it's not fine. It's yeah, I, I would agree that you're not supposed to do that. In terms of the priestly blessing, this is an interesting question. Let's go to the text. It's number 622 and following. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So the question is, when a person is a person allowed to give this if they're not if there is a person allowed to say this over people if they're not a priest? What do you think, Rob? I'll let you go first. I think so, but of course, I you know we have uh, people in our community who have very beautiful voices and they, they sing it and it's a, it's at a conclusion of our, our worship and service of our hearing of the scriptures of our discussions. And, um, to me, it's, it's a very valuable, precious, um, moment, but do we have Kohanim? No, there's no valid um, Kohanim right now, right? Priests, in other words, there's not no valid priests. Community. Not in my community. <laughs> so um, the question, so, yeah, go ahead. But 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 we're not adver- But 
at the same time, we're not advertising it as being, um, we're not advertising it as this is a fulfillment somehow. We're not claiming to be observing this commandment. Does that make sense? We're not claiming to be fulfilling this passage of scripture. Um, that That's my perspective on it. Well, I, I guess the question that I would have is, okay, yes, the priests were commanded to say this over the people, right? So they're commanded to. Does that mean that no one else is commanded to say that prayer? I don't think so. No, as a matter of fact, here, here's the other angle. Is it just reciting scripture, right? I mean, it, it's scripture that's being recited. And people memorize, hear scripture and they memorize scripture by hearing it and singing it and hearing it sung and repetition. And this is super important. So uh, hearing it read or hearing it sung or chanted and understanding its meaning is super important in my, in my opinion. Yeah. The chat room says the text doesn't say only, I agree with that. Here's the question. Here's the argument that maybe I would raise. Let's say that right now, um, you know, the person who, who writes this question, let's say that they start to get some psoriasis in their hair. Okay. And they start to lose their hair, you know, cause they got this red flaky grossness going on in their hair. You going to not go see anybody for it? Or are you going to make sure that your doctor is a Cohen? Because according to the Torah, if that happens, what do you have to do? You go present yourself before the Cohen. Right? And the Cohen looks at it and he he declares you essentially unclean for seven days. You go, you quarantine yourself, and then what happens? After that, you come back to the priest. Priest looks at it. If it's grown, then you, you know, then other steps are taken. If not, then, you know, he decides that you're, you're, you're okay. Well, it doesn't mean that only the priest can do this, but this is obviously within the camp and within, within Israel, you're supposed to present yourself so that they basically can tell you whether or not you're allowed in the temple or not, whether or not you're allowed to live within the city gates, all these things. Now, if the temple is still standing and the, and the priest was there, you would have to go see the, the priest if you were in the land. There's no doubt about that. But the question is, would you be able to go see a physician as well? Of course you would. It doesn't say you have to only go to the priest. There are jobs that the priest does, I think, that are meant to contain things and to keep things out from the community of Israel. That is living within the inside the gates and also going inside the, te the temple proper. But that doesn't mean that it's the only thing, you know, the only person that you can see on those matters. Okay, here's another, here's another uh, angle as we look at the end of Numbers chapter 6. Nowhere does the Torah say this is fixed to a liturgical event. This, this is the core, um, what do you call it? The core modus operandi or whatever you call uh, the core modus operandi charge, yeah. the core mission of the priests. This is at all times. In other words, when they're interacting with Israelites, they are to be a blessing to them and they are to be encouraging them with these words and to re this is the core the uh, uh, 
Kohanim theology that they are to be teaching the children of Israel at all times. And, and so this is an important, back to theology matters, where do we receive our blessings? Who is it who guards and protects us? What does it mean that he would be gracious unto us? What does it mean to be a recipient of his grace? What does it mean to, to, for him to treasure me and us? What does it mean to have his shalom? Those are the core theological uh, uh, formative concepts that the Israelite who's learning this doctrine from the Kohanim, who are, who are, this is their message. And of course, does this mean they're always liturgically saying this? No, it could be in their actions, in their teaching of who yod heh is. They're explaining his character to them. And if this is part of the message that, that the Israelite then is encouraged, wow, he's good. This is who he is. And I don't want to sin against him. And if I inadvertently sin against him, the, the same Kohanim are going to teach me about chatat and the restoration. Okay, so you did this. We confess it. This is what you do. You confess the sin, and, and since you're a lay Israelite, you bring a, a female goat, and this is what we're going to do. And you're going to learn this is what the Torah is. And now you know this commandment here. This is, that's what's going on here. It's not that God's not going to bless Israel if Aaron and his sons don't do this, right? Because his promise is, I will bless you. And so he told Abraham, I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. You be a blessing. So this is about blessing. It's about shalom. It's about grace. It's about being protected, not by things of men, but, but finding all these things in the, their source, which is an eternal uh, in the heavens, is from God. I think that uh, the Torah, and people might disagree with this, but I think that the Torah has been set up so that <clears throat> various communities can make various decisions on halakhic rulings like this. Now, some are obviously uh, non-negotiable, right? Um, things of greater weight, obviously, the Torah is very explicit about. But things like this, you know, if I went into a community, <clears throat> pardon me, if I went into a community and they said, you can't give the ironic benediction because you're not, uh, you know, you're not of the line of, of a Cohen. You know, we need, we need, uh, you know, this guy, Jacob Cohen to do it instead. I would say, okay, if that's what the community has ruled, then okay. However, if I go into a community like the one that I'm a part of and they say, well, we don't have any Cohen's here. So we're going to let, you know, John Smith go ahead and do it. We're going to let Patrick O'Malley do it. Um, you know, obviously, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, say okay to that as well. Um, all right. So, I hope that this has been uh, informal for people. And I apologize uh, to those who uh, weren't able to catch us live, who usually keep us uh, catch us live. But uh, we hope that you enjoy the, uh, the show on demand. Anything else before we go? Happy Sukkot, brother. Happy to Are we done with our show? That went quick. It was an hour. You want to keep going? Let's go one more. I want to do one more email. Go for it. Well, it's an email I haven't heard back from yet. This is the one to, uh, well, we received an email from Scott. 
who said, hey, I got this article from Ariel Ministries, which is Dr. Uh, Arnold Frucht, uh, Fruchtenbaum, and he's making some claims about the Messiah and, uh, and rabbinic literature, and I don't know, what, could you have a look at that? And I looked at it, and so I said, thanks, Scott. I appreciate the email. I didn't know this. Um, I love your response. I love I love <laughs> I love you uh, writing to Doctor Fruchtenbaum. So I wrote. This is a great email. So I'm going to post the link. I'll, I'll post the link in. Oh, it's again not going to work. Um, uh, for those who are in the chat room, anyway, it, it's it's called uh, under his, one of his study sessions called the Doctrine of Messiah. The Three Messianic Miracles by Dr. Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum. And these are some of the statements it says. Uh, Sometime prior to the coming of Yeshua, Jesus, the ancient rabbis separated miracles into two categories. Um, And he goes on to say, uh, the rabbinic teaching that certain miracles would be reserved only for the Messiah to do, etc., um, it was taught by the rabbis that only the Messiah would be able to heal a Jewish leper. Um, here's another one. So within the framework of Judaism, it was impossible to cast out a dumb demon. The rabbis had taught, however, that when the Messiah came, he would be able to cast out this type of demon. So I've, I've heard okay. these things, by the way, I've heard these claims from other messianics and from what I understand, this is much later rabbinic oh, understanding. Yeah. We're talking yeah, like yeah. we're talking like Middle Ages and later. So th- this is the point of he doesn't cite any sources. Now, when he in the article he he quotes scripture all over. He's got a lot of good scripture in there. With tells you what what gospel, for example, what chapter, what verse. But this rabbinic stuff is woven in to create this background that's supposed to help highlight the scripture. My argument is this is a fail. Not because he's he's quoting scripture. The scripture is good. The problem is he's this is no different than what our friend Andre presented when he's talking about uh, uh, is it Hislop and the whole uh, two Babylons. The I I fail. Keep going. The idea of <laughs> who benefits from telling a lie, right? There, I, I am convinced, and, and tell me otherwise, would Yeshua ever employ a lie to advance his kingdom? No. Is it in the nature of Messiah to say, I'll tell you what, just stretch that, go ahead and do that, color that together because it makes me look good? Would he is that even in the character of Yeshua? I'm gonna say, Caleb says no. I say no, absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. There's no place where Yeshua is going to say, tell falsify the background of the gospels so that I look so that my messiahship pops out more. Yeah, no, not to, not gonna happen. <laughs> no. So why do we see do, uh, people who are PhDs that tells us clearly he's a PhD and a THM. So this is kind of like, you know, we've seen other teachers who And he got his P- he got his PhD from NYU. So says the chat room. 
<clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I, I know that uh, Dr. Brown did. Um, I don't think Dr. Brown would uh, would even touch this with a ten foot ten foot pole. You I know think what? He'd say, but, but the, I don't know. But you know what? Uh, and I know Dr. Brown, and and I actually appreciate a lot of what uh, a lot of what he does. But uh, you know, when it comes to the rabbinical texts, uh, I've been surprised by some of what Dr. Brown is maybe a little bit uh, late to the party in terms of understanding when it comes to rabbinical texts. For instance, uh, you know, he uh, he strongly uh, promoted Itzhak Shapira's book, Return of the Kosher oh, Pig, right. which was just a which was just a horrific. A blunder when it came to rabbinic Judaism as a whole, and just understanding of rabbinics in general. It just it was very bad. Um, so, and that's not to put down Dr. Brown. Honestly, I think that Dr. Brown's work is his focus is in something else. You know, he, he's he's not a no, right. he's not a, a yeah. scholar of rabbinic literature, and so you know he's well he is with, with he was with respect to his answering objections. Yeah, I mean, um, but the point is this: here, here's the point: is that we have another example here of someone smuggling in stuff without citing it, and this is back to our why we say cite your sources. This is a perfect example of someone who sells countless books. They've been in ministry for decades have a lot of people that respect and look up to them and are and I'm just emailed and I asked just a few um, questions I, I cited I grabbed a couple of these sentences and I put them together and I said um, at the end I asked three questions I said what are your rabbinic what are your rabbinic sources for each of these claims because earlier I said you know you you're good to write on with with citing your scripture passages but you sneak these these things in about rabbis, you know, prior to coming to Yeshua, the ancient rabbis separated miracles. It's this, it's like a dreamland. It's you're, 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 it's a, it's an absolute dreamland that you're telling people because you're trying to set up this, something about the scripture. And it's like, you don't have to do that. You don't have to manufacture dreamland in order for the gospels to be real and effective and, and, uh, glorifying to who Yeshua is. They do it on their own. But anyway, I said, so three questions. What are your rabbinic sources for each of these claims? Because I listed several. I said, why do you not cite the sources for your readers? That was my second question in your article. And third, how confident are you concerning your representation of first century Pharisaic or, quote, rabbinic thought in your article? Thank I'm going to, I'm going to take it. So I, just, I emailed, I never heard back. I, and then I replied, I emailed again saying, Hey, just, I'm going to, I'm uh, going to, just I, in case. I'm going to put it in the book right now. Okay. I'm going to put it in, put it in the book. My, my wager, I'll put money down. I, I bet you a dollar. You never get a response response. Well, they might not even read it. I don't even know. They might get hammered with hundreds and hundreds of emails. I don't know. Yeah. But that's, I mean, yeah. Uh, agreed. But at the same time, that's not really, I don't see you getting a response, even if they read it. Maybe, they, maybe you will. Maybe you will. All right. Um, yeah. Good times. So Anything that gets else? back to our, uh, cite your sources. Theology matters. And, and that's it. Is it, does it matter? Here's, here's the theology matters. Quite. Here's a theology question. Back to the, back to Sean's excellent question from the get go pertaining to Dr. Fruchtenbaum's article here. Does it matter theologically 
that I'm going to publish a book and I'm going to manufacture a, quote, background for the Gospels. I'm not going to tell anybody what my sources are. I'm just going to say the rabbis did this. The ancient rabbis believed this and this and this. When, in fact, I can't demonstrate that. Is that theologically sound? So theology matters. Caleb and I have both made it clear. Our position is that here theology matters and scholarship counts both apply yeah. very strong in this situation. Just like we say last week when we were looking at uh, uh, Rick Chamberlain's article on the original languages. We're going to say scholarship matters, or, or theology matters, scholarship counts in that realm too. This is the... That's the basis of why we want to talk about it. We're not people bashing. We're not here to try to bash people. We're trying to say, look, I, th- we want to learn to think accurately. We don't benefit. No one benefits if we're believing lies. No one benefits if we're, if we're advertising Yeshua incorrectly, if we're misrepresenting the Word of God. Who benefits? Especially, no one. That's why we say these things. That's why we say... Theology matters. Scholarship counts. Well, especially in this movement, right? Especially in this movement, it's important to try to keep our uh, the the people who are teaching and leading accountable. It seems like people have drunk the Kool Aid. Pardon the you know the analogy, but drunk the Kool Aid on Hebrew roots and Messianic. I learned something great. I realized that the Torah, you know, is a wonderful blessing instead of a you know this horrible burden. Okay, great. But it's like as soon as somebody realizes that, it's, oh, well, all the teachers that, you know, that I find in, the, in this movement must then be preaching gospel, essentially, instead of, instead of saying, okay, I believe this, but now let's keep a, a, a clear head and understand that just because they might have said one thing good doesn't mean that everything that they say is great. And I think that that's, you know, one of the big problems that we've seen within the uh, Hebrew Roots Messianic Movement. Okay, Um, well, we want to hear from you. So uh, go ahead and give us a call, 253-465-3205. I'll give it to you again. It's 253-465-3205. Don't forget to send us emails, cheg at torahresource.com. It's pretty easy. It's my first initial, my last name, and then at TorahResource.com. See how you get TorahResource.com. Go to TorahResource and, vi- and uh, find all sorts of great uh, resources, free resor- resources as well. Over 100 academic articles are posted there, some by myself, some by Rob, but mostly from my father, Tim Hegg. So we would encourage you all to go there and check it out. And don't forget our wonderful sponsors for show 191, Chava Messianic Radio and Yeshua Shirts. Dot com. Anything else before we go, Rob? No. Happy Sukkot. Happy Tabernacles. Chag Sameach. That's right. Uh, this is a wonderful time of the year. If you are a believer who does not celebrate uh, the, the festivals that are prescribed in the Torah, I would encourage you to look into maybe doing so. And for those of you who are already sitting in your Sukkah this Sukkot, we hope that it is a blessing that we uh, can... Look and see that this life is uh, temporary, but that there is a time to come when our Messiah Yeshua will reign on this earth. He will reign from uh, his throne and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Yeshua, our great God and Savior, is the true Messiah. 
and the true Lord.